Hey folks, this is Dakota Cohen here, back for another episode of Building Your Property, Building Your Permaculture Property Podcast. And on today's episode, I have uh, Neil Spackman. So Neil was part of our uh, summit for our book that we just launched, and Rob and I only had like just over an hour to chat with them, and it just it wasn't enough time. So we wanted to get a, him back on the <laughs> the podcast to kind of finish some stuff off. There we go. Um, Neil, just to start off with, for folks who, who aren't familiar with you, could you just give uh, a quick introduction to who you are, the, you know, how you got into permaculture and, and kind of what some of the projects you're working on next? Sure. I'm, um, I got into sustainability in building environments and in food systems um, when I lived in Guatemala which was between 1999 and 2001. Worked with a lot of people who were in quite destitute circumstances and, and were facing lots of issues related to those two topics. And that kind of set me on my path about uh, caring about poverty and caring about sustainability. And <clears throat> I... Um, did a lot of reading on the subject, a lot of study, but I wasn't working in that field until I got an opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia and lead a project called the Albaida Project, where I lived with tribes of settled Bedou um, and worked with hundreds of, of tribesmen in prototyping a way to restore their indigenous grazing systems through silvopasture. And so we were essentially converting areas of Saudi desert back into forest and then using that as a basis for, for grazing. And I was on that project for nine years. That was really the first time I got into this kind of work professionally, or rather that was the transition was going to Albaida um, and I'm currently, I left Albaida middle of 2018 to do a, a business degree and right out of business school, I started, I started a company called Regenerative Resources and we are focused on arid coastal landscapes and we're kind of at the intersection of halophytic agriculture refers to crops grown in seawater and uh, and regenerative agriculture which I'm sure your audience is much more familiar with and so we're kind of at we're at the intersection of those and that puts us in the forefront of a what is a very undeveloped set of systems uh, the first real product we're rolling out, or the first system we're rolling out, is a mangrove agroforestry where we are using effluent from aquacultures to grow mangrove forests, mangrove wetlands, and um, halophytic cropping systems. And that makes the aquacultures have zero pollution. Um, where aquacultures are an extremely dirty industry right now. Um, but we're also developing our own aquaculture feeds off of these halophytic cropping systems. So we're 
we're making aquaculture circular and regenerative. And I think we're the, the first ones in the world to be doing it. There, there may be other folks out there, but I haven't found them making aquaculture circular and regenerative. Um, you asked about current projects. We've got leads all over the planet, but the, the ones we're most focused on right now are a few in Mexico, um, one in, in West Africa that's not a done deal yet, but we're, we're getting close to it being a deal. And then we hope to have one in the Middle East by the end of the year. And those will those three will keep us very occupied for the next 24, 36 months. No kidding. Because you were saying like these are these are pretty large projects. They were, you know, several thousand acres, weren't they? Yes. Um, so in Mexico, we're doing a, a mangrove reforestation that's in a UNESCO biosphere and whale sanctuary. We're, we're partnered with a number of fishing villages where their catch has decreased by 90% in the last decade, wow. right? They're facing a, a tragedy of the commons. Yeah. Um, all their kids are leaving oh. because there's no future in the area. And um, so we're, we're doing a reforestation on 8,000 hectares, which is about the size of Manhattan Island. Most of that's water. We're not planting all 8,000 hectares, but it's an, yeah, yeah. it's an area that big. Yeah. Uh, we estimate we'll do 12 million mangroves there over the next four years, hiring local fishermen to work in that. And then at the same time, we're doing, we're starting with a 500 hectare regenerative aquaculture system with those same fishing villages. So we're creating an alternative economy that's circular and regenerative and working on the conservation side of things so that this area, it, 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 we're really creating a healthier nursery for baby whales. Yeah. This is where Pacific gray whales come to calve every year. Um, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a node point in the chain of ocean health, right? It's, it's where you can have a massive bang for your buck there as opposed to somewhere else. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're doing both economy and ecology in that particular project. Um, the one in West Africa, we're looking at a 5,000 hectare phase one. Although we'd probably start, we'd probably only develop 500 first and then move up to 1500 and then to 5000 and by then we'll have you know all the all the t's crotted and the i's t's crossed and the i's dotted and all the kinks worked out of the system yeah and this is in a place where there's half a million acres that we could deploy the system on wow so it's that's that's what we'd like to do you know we're looking at um creating kind of regional nuclei around the globe from which this system can expand. Yeah. Um, in partnership with local entities. Uh, in fact, the more local, the better. But the big ambitions, but um, we got to do the first things first. Totally. Very cool. 
So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, uh, I mean, you mentioned that you've, you've always been kind of interested in, in, you know, poverty and, and helping, um, you know, basically develop communities and stuff like that. And, and that, that led you to, you know, working with the Albeda project, but, yeah. but then you went to business school. Well, That's why, right. Why business school? Uh, Neil, I, th I thought businessmen were heartless, greedy capitalists. We sure are. <laughs> heartless, greedy capitalists. Um, no, I think when I, when I finished Albeda, I was trying to figure out what my next steps were. And my thought process was how do I make the most difference? in the world, you know, with the, you know, five decades of productivity that I've got left. Yeah. <clears throat> and looking at all the options that were out there, I decided that the best vehicle for creating the most impact was a corporation. Um, and we, you know, our corporation does straddle nonprofit and for-profit objectives. In fact, we have a nonprofit financing mechanism, but um, it, I think it gives us the best chance to, to heal the earth rather than to become a politician or an educator um, or, or a strict nonprofit. I, I find that being a for-profit entity gives us the most leeway and the best chances at creating massive impact to to heal the planet and and bring people out of poverty yeah so i mean i mean the do you are you comfortable kind of digging into that a little bit because the this is a this is a, a very common um kind of hang up that a lot of uh, people in the permaculture space have which is like you know, people who who want to do want to do good and and you know help but they they go the kind of nonprofit um yeah. you know route and and so like are there was there like a turning point in in your mind where you like or any um experiences that that really kind of galvanized that that you know business was was it was kind of a missing piece of the puzzle i'm not sure that there is a certain experience as much as it dawned on me over time that the economic and the ecological are inextricably connected. Yeah. Um, in Albeda, <clears throat> the biggest driver of deforestation was poverty. Yeah. Right? And, and people couldn't feed their animals on their land anymore because of changes in policy. That, that was the underlying cause. Yeah. But the effect of that was that people had to cut down trees in order to buy imported fodder. Um, so they're converting one kind of biological capital into another so that they can feed their animals. Yeah. Because um, their culture revolves around grazing, right? These are nomadic peoples. And so for me, it was the realization that <clears throat> The separation of ecology and economy is a, is a false approach. Yeah. It, it, it's a wrong approach. And, and this is something that we've done as a species for hundreds of thousands of years. 
that we we have two fundamental sets of issues that we face right now, but they're not new. It's just at a different scale and it's with a different kind of saturation on the planet. And, and those issues are a human issues, right? Ignorance, poverty, um, inequality, and, you know, prejudice and lack of education and unjust laws and unjust systems all these things are human issues yeah right and then we've got an environmental set of issues that are very old you know deforestation soil loss um, water resources depletion desertification and today we can add ocean acidification ocean dead zones um climate as the umbrella term for all of this stuff um but these none of these issues are new except for maybe the ocean dead zones and the ocean acidification right deforestation desertification soil loss and water resource depletion are are as old as agriculture um, and I would also add biodiversity loss, but biodiversity loss isn't a new thing either. You know, the first Americans drove the mammoth extinct. You know, that's, that's not a new thing. The only place where we didn't drive apex predators and megafauna extinct was in Africa, because in Africa, those species had enough time to adjust to humans being massive predators. Right, but every other continent where people showed up, there wasn't enough time for those animals to adapt to our presence, and we drove them extinct as a species. So that, and so these these are old old issues. The problem is now they're happening everywhere, and we can't just pick up and go to somewhere else and start the process and let the place where we were before start healing. But we we've got these two sets of issues, the human set and the environmental set, and we only ever address one by exacerbating the other, right? So if we wanna, <clears throat> if we wanna build an economy, we do it by destroying ecologies, right? We, we mine soil, we mine minerals, we deforest, we desertify, right? You look at the American West right now with drought and water resources, it's terrifying, Yeah. right? Yeah. But everyone's like, well, hey, I need my water, right? Who's gonna give up their water first? Yeah. Nobody. Um, and so we're exacerbating the environmental issues by trying to address the human ones. And we try to, when we try to address the environmental issues, we exacerbate the human ones, right? We, we create this massive area and we say, no person is allowed to utilize the resources in this area. It yeah. is forbidden, it's set aside for nature, right? And so the, this idea that we can only solve the environment by shutting people out and we can only help people by destroying the environment is not an explicit one. It's not a, it's not a narrative, but it is a dominant practice and it is an implicit yeah, set yeah. of assumptions that inform these things and so what my business does is we combine ecology with economy we explicitly say these things are deeply intertwined and unless we approach them both together there's never going to be a solution 
um, because just like poverty and ecological degradation are, are deeply, deeply connected, so are wealth and ecological well-being, yeah. right? There is no wealth without functioning ecologies. I don't care how many computers or zeros you have in your bank account. Um, if you don't have clean air, clean water, a healthy ecology, greenery, right, and functioning ecosystems, there's no food, there's no water, there's no soil, and, and those zeros in your bank account don't mean anything, right? Because we can't yeah. eat money. Yeah. And so <clears throat> if we're addressing economic issues, that's a business, right? We have to create jobs that don't destroy the environment. Yeah. Right? In fact, we can create jobs that heal the environment. And that's what we're doing. That's, that's what our business is about at, at a very fundamental level. And you can't do that as a nonprofit, not very well, because nonprofits tend to be poorly managed financially because they don't have to report on that bottom line. Yeah. Right? They don't have to do it. Right? But the other thing is that we're talking about trillion dollar problems. And the total amount of philanthropy globally is in the tens of billions. Right? There's, there's, uh, a single digit number of trillions of dollars sloshing around investment around the globe, right? And, and they, I think 11 or 12 billion in philanthropy every year. Wow. So is it, is it better to try to solve a trillion dollar problem with $12 billion of philanthropy when 2% of philanthropic money goes to environmental issues? Or is it better to harness the greed of the trillions of dollars of investment and say, we're gonna solve problems with that much bigger set of ammunition, Yeah. right? There's trillions in dry powder if we can attract investors into this versus billions of dry powder if we're gonna do this as a nonprofit, right? So the, the context of where we are now, the fact that Corporate, multinational corporations in many senses are more powerful than national governments. Yeah. Um, if we're going to solve this, it's going to be with businesses. Governments are not going to lead on this because they don't have the capacity to do it. Especially yeah. democracies, right? Democracies are lagging institutions. You don't get policy change until you get the whole market to change first. Yeah. Yeah, it was, democracy is basically mob rule. <laughs> yeah, um, you got the mob on your side first. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's that's really interesting. I've I've um, uh, and very well articulated the 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 other kind of aspect of this that because um, Rob and I have also kind of come to the same conclusion as well in that and um, and it was it was much to our kind of uh chagrin and, and we were you know we were kicking our heels basically the whole way along as we were having these insights and it's like yeah like like the best way to help people is through um you know engaging their their self-interest and yeah and and so like the have you have you um have you ever read atlas shrugged or any of of ayn rand's books or anything like that's that that's in high school 
No. I read it in high school because I had to. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like, it's, I know people, whenever you say that name, people cringe because it's, <laughs> she's, there's a lot of, she had a lot of very uh, interesting stances on things. But like the, I just finished reading basically all of her books again. And, and the one piece that I, I, I'm the most confident on in terms of like what she was trying to articulate was the fact that our entire our entire kind of cultural values and moral system is based on one of of altruism uh basically sacrifice of self for others and sacrifice of others for self and when you were talking about this idea of like like, like we, we either have to kill the environment to save people or we have to kill people to save the environment. And, yeah. and, and like, it's like, that's, that's the logical conclusion of an altruistic moral system. And, and so her kind of, her radical um, uh, moral system that she kind of developed was that um, like self-interest and like, you know, basically the individual and the individual, individual's right to his own kind of pursuit of happiness was this kind of gold standard for morality and, and ethics and um and now it, it, tied to that is like well if, like if if i have that right then everybody all other humans should have that right as well sure and and her big failing was that she drew the line around humans and it's like, like it was wrong for a human to you know do anything bad to another human but anything goes once you got into the ecological realm, into everything right? else yeah, I think that was just kind of her, you know, she wrote these books in like the 40s and 50s when there wasn't as much, um, you know, ecological understanding. But uh, the, the, the key piece that, that um, uh, we're also kind of working on some business projects right now and like the, the um, one of the kind of, you know, the mission statements that we're working on right now is, is like, it's like a harnessing enlightened self-interest to restore the planet. It's, sure. like, it's actually like creating a cultural shift around like going, going to businessmen. It's like, look, like you understand self-interest. Like that's why you're in business. You understand that it's, it's not wrong to make you know money, but you've got this narrow definition of what wealth is. And, but like in a five minute conversation, you can explain all the, the, the benefits of, you know, clean air, clean water and all these different things. And then it's like, and so like, if, if you truly believe in, in kind of self-interest, it's, it's actually a, like, this is the best investment. And I think it's, it's just this, it's, um, the, it's a total shift from going and like begging for handouts, you know, via the kind of the nonprofit route. And then when the money dries up, you know, the project dies and, and uh, yep. I just, there's, there's so many amazing people I've met over the years that have been working on these not-for-profit things. And, they, they crash and burn as soon as the, that, you know, the, <laughs> the 2% of the, of, yep. the, of the 1% dries up. Well, it's a super common story. Yeah. I think the way, the way that I talk about what you just said is when we talk about working with nature, uh, that also includes human nature. Yeah. Right. And, and as much as there are, massive cultural differences in the individualism versus collectivism spectrum you know around the globe i do think self-interest is a part of human nature i think we're also inclined to cooperate as much as we are to compete sure Uh, we're also inclined to tribalism yeah 
And so we, when we're talking about working with nature, if we throw human nature out of that, we're not going to succeed. No. And, and this is, this is a, another um, really kind of interesting, uh, what you call it, like a, a, a paradigm, I guess, it, it, that, that I've also become aware of is, is humans. So in, we have this framework that we call like the kind of the, the three paradigms through which people see the world. And one of them is, is the, the um, degenerative paradigm, which is humans are separate from the natural world and we're better than. Yeah. And then this, there's the sustainable world or the sustainable paradigm, which is like the, the one that's kind of up and coming, which is humans are separate from the natural world and we're less than. So yeah. it's like, you know, humans are a kind of a, a fallen species. You know, we evolve, we evolve from monkeys or the alternative, it's like, you know, we were given you know, basically divine sanction and uh, we're, we're somehow special or, or whatever. And then the, the third paradigm, which is, I think is emerging in this, this kind of regenerative space right now is, is the regenerative paradigm, which is, is that humans just are, we're part of nature. We're, we're not, we're not separate. Uh, we're not separate from it. We're part of the kind of the, the web of life yeah. and, and that it's in our own. So basically it goes from like a, a pyramid where humans are at the top to a, a pyramid to humans where, where pe people are at the bottom mm -hmm. and then like, you know, dogs and cats and, and then, you know, chickens and pigs are all, and then, and then there's like a circle yeah. and then humans are, are like just, you know, one of the kind of nodes in the web of life and part of that web. Yeah. Well, and it gets to, this gets to a question about identity because the dominant narrative is that we're a virus. Yeah. Right, we go yeah. from place to place, we destroy it, and then we move on. Yeah, which certainly has some historical basis to it. Yeah, at least since the advent of agriculture. Yeah. Um, but you know there are numerous examples of people who have been a part of their ecology and maintain those ecologies for thousands of years, and those are in those are indigenous peoples that's not all indigenous peoples but those are the indigenous peoples that you know successfully have cultures that are thousands of years old yeah right and so the i rely heavily on some indigenous thought for my foundational concept of who we're supposed to be as a species yeah Right, and supposed to be is, right, we're not in the realm of science once we're talking about supposed to, right? We're talking about how do we see ourselves? But I think the most, <clears throat> what we can conclude from the fact that there are people that have managed their ecologies and created successful cultures and societies around that integration, what that says to me is what we're supposed to be as a keystone species. Yeah. That we, that the stewardship of the planet is, is what we're supposed to be taking charge of. Not because we're better, but because that's what our capacity is. You know, we've got massive capacity for destruction as evidenced by the last 8,000 years of history and, and probably going back further than that. <clears throat> but what indigenous societies teach us is that we've also got massive capacity to heal and to steward. And we've got, 
you know, as a, as a species, both as individuals and, and as, you know, a collective, as a, as a group of tribes and nations, we've got to decide pretty quickly that we're going to steward or not, right? And we've been, that choice has not been made explicit, right? Because it's beyond the purview of most of us, right? Yeah. Well, and it's it's so funny because like in, in the media, it's always presented as like there's the there's the ecologist or there's the economist, and the ecologist yeah. is saying like no no we've we've got to kill people to save to save people, <laughs> and and like kind of. and then and then there's the ecolo- the the um, economist who's like no no we 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 have to keep going we have to keep we burning. need growth yeah we need we need growth and it's 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 this either or um just ridiculous uh you know like false dichotomy and it's like there's a third option which is like we can have our cake and eat it too in in this situation and but it's it's i've never seen it um represented in uh apart from basically in like the permaculture or the regenerative agriculture space it's really strange the best framework i have for talking about this is kate raworth's donut economics Okay, yeah. You're familiar with that concept? I, I've I looked at it a couple of years ago, but I'm I'm rusty on it. It's it's worthwhile because she's an economist who said, "Look, GDP does not take into account yeah the foundation on which everything rests." And she yes, created yeah. the donut, which explicitly creates this relationship between human well-being and you know, unspecified planetary boundaries. And she gets, she gets more granular than that, but it's the best framework that I've found for explaining the relationship between these two things. Yeah. Right. Because, and, and the way that for your listeners, the imagine a donut and the outside of the donut represents, you know, the planetary boundaries of, of production. Right. And it's not just production, but it's also things like ozone, and healthy oceans and you know healthy ecologies and then the inside of the donut represents the donut hole represents all the people whose needs are not taken care of yeah right so the the idea is to get people out of the donut hole and onto the donut um without destroying that outside of the donut right so the way I think about it is we've been moving people onto the donut by shrinking it, right? We are limiting the planet's boundaries to produce in the future by destroying ecological processes. Yeah. And it's only permaculture and regenerative thought. And, and I would suggest indigenous thought as well on which both of those things rely heavily. Yeah. Um, That says, well, no, we can take care of people and expand the donut yeah right we can grow the donut while moving people out of the hole and i think that's to the extent that that concept is is the concept of the donut is gaining traction i know that the city of amsterdam has just adopted it as their fundamental model of how they're going to think about how their city operates interesting um it's it's starting to gain traction within certain circles that are somewhat influential. And I think I, it's the best framework I've got for talking about this. Yeah. 
so the, with in terms of that that donut um, kind of being like the you know there's there is some kind of an um, an outer limit uh, or or finiteness it, you know if if obviously there's renewable resources and stuff but like should you exceed certain things there's a way to kind of break through that that boundary and it's and there's there's problems there but yeah. one of the one of the things like uh, recently I've I've been really trying to kind of challenge my um, my assumptions around because like like it's so easy to get it in a in an echo chamber where you know you you hold a certain belief and and you just you reinforce that belief by just listening to other people that just spelt your own shit right back at you and so that's kind of one of the reasons why i've, I've gone back and and listened to all of ayn rand's stuff again is because it's like it's it's very um very different i'm reading books on like um economy right now from thomas Sowell and and um uh, and one of the the things that that um, popped up for me was or she, or she uh, Jul Simon Julian or Julian Julian Simon um, and his work on the ultimate resource. He was in a. I'm not familiar with that. Okay, so um, I, I haven't read his book, but um, I've, I've seen a, a few of his talks, and um, he was he was like the antithesis of a guy named Paul Ehrlich. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the population bomb was Paul yeah, Ehrlich. Yeah, the population bomb. So he he was uh, at the same time, kind of Paul Ehrlich was was gaining traction. Um, uh, uh, Julian uh, Julian Simon was was the his polar opposite, and yeah. um, he um, his theory was that basically human human ingenuity was the ultimate resource, and that they're like no matter what happened in terms of like you know scare. Like, you know, based on basic economic principles, you know, when one resource became scarce, say fish or whale oil or whatever, you know, that it would, the price would rise and then that would switch to, you know, another resource or it would, it would, it would spur people to, you know, to innovate. yeah, innovate to, to kind of solve the problem. So he, yeah. he, his theory was that basically the resources on planet earth are infinite and, and that all these kind of ecologists, they're just, they're just, you know, um, they're just, you know, crying wolf and and uh, are playing chicken little, and there's nothing to worry about, and just kind of, just all, all we need to do is focus on, <laughs> uh, on economy, and and this stuff will just work itself out. And sure. and like, you know, I'm I'm listening to some of these guys that have been, you know, saying this stuff since the, you know, Ayn Rand basically said it in the, you know, the 40s and 50s, and then and um, you know, Julian Simon said it in the the 80s and 90s. And then, like it's it's been this this constant theme. But like, meanwhile, like I'm 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 looking at like from this other you know kind of echo chamber, which is permaculture, and it's just like you know ocean acidification, all these different things. Yeah. And it's like, um, no, there 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 are certainly <clears throat> hard limits, and if we exceed those, like it's it's bad. And then yep. we get into this this downward spiral, like you said, where you know, like the 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 Bedouin and and um, that you worked with in Alberta, they there's not grass for the animals. So they got to cut down trees, and then there's not trees anymore, and so they have to like, and it's just yeah, they're yeah. the the scarcity of that resource is is driving not human kind of ingenuity, but it's just like just a race to the bottom, basically. Yep, yep, absolutely. Well, I think the reason that I'm not a doomer pessimist is because I think people are very creative. Yeah. And and I think ingenuity and creativity is our yes. As a species, that's what makes us unique. 
Yeah. Right? There's not another species on the planet that's learned how to inhabit every single ecology, or at least every terrestrial ecology, right? Maybe, We're not maybe, living maybe, under the ocean. Maybe coyotes. <laughs> I, I mean, there are a few. I mean, certainly there are. I don't know if there are coyotes in like the Himalayas or in the upper mountain ranges, but anyway, certainly we are creative and, in, and yes. ingenuitive, right? Yeah. In that case, he's very right. Yeah. Where, and we're going to figure out creative ways to integrate these ecological factors and environmental factors into our accounting. The problem is that our our capacity to affect the earth is growing at a faster rate than our capacity to understand that effect. Yeah, yeah. I and that, that we, we fail to account for externalities or to consider them until a crisis hits, yeah. right? And so <clears throat> yeah. I, do, I, think, I think he's half right. I, I agree. And, and uh, you're half right in the sense that we are creative and, and that creativity will allow us to figure out ways to be stewards of the planet. Yeah. Um, but the idea that we don't have to worry about it, in my opinion, is a pretty garbage idea. Totally. <laughs> I, 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 and maybe, maybe I'm kind of straw manning his, his point on that, but I, I do get yeah. the sense of um, from, from some of the the stuff that I read recently, of like, it's very much kind of poo-pooed in in you know that kind of degenerative paradigm of just like don't worry about it. He, like we're so smart, you know, we'll just figure it out. And all we need to do is just you know focus on the economy and and it'll be fine. But like it's like th th these when I hear stuff like this, it's like it, these people are ignorant of of history and and ecology. Like like what's happening yeah. right now and what's happened in the past. Like there have been many civilizations that have that were quite advanced that collapsed utterly within a few decades as a result of, of you know, destroying their ecosystems. There's a great Absolutely. by Jared Diamond collapse. Absolutely. And, I, li I like, um, have you read Dirt? Uh, that was um, David Montgomery. By Montgomery. Um, I've, I've heard him talk, but I haven't read the book. You ought to read the book, okay. it's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite books actually. And he goes through- All good. China, the Indus civilizations, the Babylonian civilizations, America, you know, early oh, United okay. States, the yeah. Mayans. Um, I mean, every single continent has had a civilization go through this stuff because they destroyed their soil. Yeah. Right. And destroying their soil, sometimes that, that started with deforestation, right? And then that deforestation led to drought, and then that drought led to soil erosion but it's it's not a new pattern no what's new about it now is that we're doing this everywhere yeah right we're doing it everywhere you know when when so one of the things that that um, montgomery talks about for the early united states was that before the narrative of um westward expansion had anything to do with the idea that it was, you know, a manifest destiny. Yeah. A hundred years before manifest destiny was even a phrase. Farmers in Virginia were completely depleting their soils in a decade 
through extensive tobacco yeah. growth. Yeah. And they destroyed the soils and then they went west where there was new soil to destroy. Yeah. Right. Westward expansion initially had nothing to do with manifest destiny. <laughs> that was the justification people put it on put on it a hundred years later. What it was yeah. about was soil destruction. And George Washington wrote about it. Yeah. <clears throat> you know? Like the, the idea that That's ecological destruction is a precursor to military expansion. Yeah. Does not bode well for a planet where ecological destruction is happening everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an ex it's a terrifying um, prequel. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, we, we, we're not the only primate species that fights over resources. Yeah. And we're depleting resources everywhere. Well, and that's, I mean, th that really kind of gets back to this, this incentive piece is like our current economic structure, like it, it, it incentivizes, you know, the, the fastest kind of growth and, and the ability to, to generate, you know, dollars, but there's, there's no, um, there's no line in the accounting system for, you know, the, for long-term wealth. And, yeah. and, and I think that's, there's, there's not, there's not in kind of the, the, you know, the, the, the global, you know, view of, 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 of the world, but there's also not at the individual level is like, I think a lot of people are just ignorant to like there's uh, Wendell Berry has this idea that's like one of the most dangerous concepts in the in in um, the human language is the concept of over there. Yeah, it's like that 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 like the fact that we that we think that oh like there's a landfill we'll just put the over over there or it will go away. It's like <laughs> there there is no over there or away. There's no away. We're we're on spaceship Earth and. And it's like, like, you know, all the shit that, that we're kind of kicking these cans down the road, like it's, it's gonna come back to us, and it might not happen in our lifetime, but it, it, like at some point, you know, your people that you love or the or or their you know progeny are gonna have to deal with this shit, and it's like, so I I don't um I can't understand kind of the the. Uh, the, the business side of, of the resistance to this this problem because it's 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 such an easy case to make the, yeah, yeah. but the, the the piece that that i'm actually most worried about ironically now um because i like we've, we've been having conversations with 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 big money and 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 big business like they get this stuff but the 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 other side of the equation which is that you know we need to we need to you know protect ecosystems from ourselves that's actually the kind of narrative that i'm most concerned with right now because it's it's basically gotten to the point where look at look at back at our history of how shitty we've been you know like look at you know, sapiens yeah sure, i'm sure you've read that that book yeah it's like using that as justification for why humans are a virus and and we should just you know we earth we better off if we just went somewhere else or or you know committed altruistic suicide as a species yeah, and like I, I, I honestly see that that paradigm gaining ground right now. It's really troubling. Well, it's the dominant paradigm. Yeah, right. That's why that's why billionaires need think we need to go to Mars. Yeah. Um. That's why. That's why. 
people think that the best we can do is be more efficient, right? The best we can do is reduce our footprint. Yeah. Because the idea that we could actually be good doesn't even occur to them. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I've told you this this um, my kind of trump card for for um, that argument, uh, but I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the you know Paul Stamets. Uh, presentation like the sixth mass extinction or the the science yeah. advances article on that yeah and so it's like basically there's pretty good evidence that we're in the sixth mass extinction my, my favorite proof is like um like when i was a kid i used to um it was my job to like refill the windshield washer fluid whenever we went for like a summer trip and it's like uh, like for the last six or seven years i have never bought in like summertime windshield washer fluid because there's no insects the bugs aren't hitting your windshield anymore. no insects anymore yeah. And so anyway, like, yeah. I, 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 I'm pretty confident, like there's, there's a lot of doom and gloom and kind of the you know, environmental reports and stuff like that, that I don't pay a lot of heat to, but this is one that I, I do think that is accurate is the, the biodiversity loss. But yeah. it's like, so there's been, that statement is super positive for two reasons. One, it's like, well, we're in the sixth mass extinction. So there's been five other ones Yeah, and, like, and we're, we're still here. And yes. so it's like at least five times in the, pla in the past, um, more than 50% of this, all species on planet Earth were wiped out and it just keeps coming back. And every time it comes back, better and more diverse than, than it was before. Oh, sure. And right. it, it, that's not the question. Earth is going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. The question is, are we going to choose to be the asteroid? So, and, and, and or this, are we going to choose to live? And, and so th this, is, this is the second reason it's, it's super <laughs> positive is that humans are just as powerful as asteroids and super volcanoes and, and you know, coronal mass ejections. It's like, we are, we are literally going up against the most powerful force in the universe. The, the force that takes, makes something out of nothing, whether that's, that's God or the big bang or whatever it is. Like there's, there is something in the universe that, you know, there's, there's bare rock and, and then you fast forward a thousand years and there's a forest there. It's like, it's 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 a miracle there's, there's there's almost no other word for it like the miracle of life is is just incredible and so like we are literally fighting that force and we're we're winning <laughs> uh yeah. but like we're gonna be the, the the victim of kind of our own or the final victim of our own battle here but it's like if if we could harness that energy as opposed to fighting it and partner partnering with it we can fast track that that ecological succession and and you know there's oodles of examples of this stuff but it's it's um, yeah. Like there's there's no there, there's nothing that like the only thing to be afraid of is basically our own paradigms. Like yep. if, if we, and which comes back to the uh, what's his name's there, Jared Diamond's book, um, collapse. He goes. Hold through, on, I just lost your sound, and I oh, don't know why. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes, now I can hear you. I accidentally hit a button. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. So uh, Jared Diamond's book Collapse, he goes through kind of the five, um, the five factors that lead to collapse. And, uh, and he studies five different civilizations and they sound very similar to the ones that, that Montgomery looked at. It was like the Anasazi, the Easter Islanders, the Greenland Norse, the, um, the Maya and um, the Pitcairn Islanders. And mm. basically these, these five factors were- Could you please repeat it? Oh, series, series interrupting us, yeah. That's right. 
uh, the, these five factors were, it was like loss of, loss of friends, mm. um, loss or uh, a gaining of an enemy, um, um, natural kind of environmental changes. So like, you know, ice ages or, you know, some kind of, you know, um, natural disasters or yeah, yeah, natural disasters, kind of acts of God type stuff. And, but yeah. the, the, and then the final two were human caused environmental damage and then the human response to that ecological damage. And so all the, the civilizations that he studied, they all shared a combination of these five factors, but every single one of them that he studied had, had two that, that they all shared. And that was human ecological destruction and then yeah. the, human, and the human response to that ecological destruction. Because he goes through civilizations that saw what they were doing and they changed, like they, they they had a healthy response to that that ecological destruction, and they pulled themselves out of it. Um, Japan was a really great example that he goes through in the book of of how you know they were on the edge of of you know basically wiping out all their forests on the island, but really good planning and um, you know long term thinking has led to like a a really great sustainable agroforestry system on on Japan and and. So it's it's really interesting that like like we are our own worst enemy in this <laughs> in this yep. situation, yeah. Um, which is which is again coming back to your insight of of like focusing on kind of the like you use the analogy of like um, um, a node or like a kind of a a, a a lever that was that was really important to pull, which is business. It's like yeah. you know because if in order to get somebody to engage in a, in a voluntary business, you have to get them to, to change their ideas. And, and then that, which in, in your case, with your business model, you get them to change their ideas to fix the environmental damage. So you're solving both of those um, five factors, or the, the most common factors in that cause collapse in the civilization. There you go. Yeah. Yep. We're the problem and we're the solution. Exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, thoughts. It's fascinating, man. I, I really, um, um, I'm, I'm, uh, just enamored with the, with the work that you've done. And, and, um, and so like, we're at some point, I'd, I'd love to have a, maybe a private chat about some of the, the work that Rob and I are doing. It's, it's, we're, we're not nearly as, as far along as, as kind of in our, um, our business development as, as you are, but, mm. um, we've also came to the same insight and we're, we're kind of, looking at coming at a, a different angle at least for right now but um i agree with you this this is kind of the the last this is the emergency break <laughs> yeah 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 well i think i think getting this narrative out <clears throat> can do a lot of good yeah and can help a lot of people move from paralysis to action yeah i think people are more inspired by hope or at yeah. least as inspired by hope as they are by fear <laughs> but i also think that when people don't have hope they they lose the faith to act yeah well and it's like there's and there's really good positive psychology on this um mm. what do they call it like the like when when you're afraid the part of your brain that gets activated is like the oldest kind of reptilian, the croc brain in the back of your head. And yeah. so it literally shuts down your ability to be creative. But the only yeah. thing that could possibly save us 
which is our, our kind of neocortex, like the, the creative part of our brain, the piece that makes novel connections between things that have never existed before. And, and so when we pump the doom and do, uh, you know, doom porn, it, 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 uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's paralyzing. Yeah, it's paralyzing, and I I feel I feel gratified that hundreds of thousands of people have watched my video because I think that is one of the stories that that is salient because yeah. we because we are in such an extreme place yeah in such extreme circumstances that that it it, it makes it salient that yeah. we were where we were. Um, but I think there need to be a lot more stories out there. I I appreciate the storytellers in our tribe, yeah, who are finding the other people doing this kind of work and telling their stories because we tend to not tell them ourselves. No, one of uh, the um, I, are you familiar with um, oh, with the, uh, Judith uh, Judy Schwartz? Yeah, Judy Schwartz. Uh, she, she she featured you in her her newest book, The Ranger Chronicles. Yeah. And I just, I just interviewed her on in the podcast a month ago. Oh, and great. Th that, like, you know, I, I, um, I read the book before I, you know, we, we set the podcast because we, we met at a conference and then I said, well, hey, you should come on the podcast and I'll talk about your new book. I haven't read and read it yet. And then yeah. I read it and I was like, holy, this is an incredible book. Like, yeah, uh, just super inspiring of, of just, like you said, looking at all these different examples, like the, the Lost Plateau and and your your Alberta project and um, this 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 guy who uh, figured that he had the ability to like re re reverse desertification on an entire country just by planting trees. It was actually along the coastline because mm. it would change it would reverse the weather patterns because he went back and looked at it was actually um, it was old like religious texts. Um, and found that like the winds used to blow from a different direction and like and and like that brought in you know the seasonal rains and stuff and then like yeah. somehow figured out that when people cut down these trees it reversed the winds and it blew all the the moisture off the landscape oh, and, it, land. and it's just like like, like there is so much stuff that we can do that we that uh, yeah there's there's no fear at all in in my mind except for for people when they're <laughs> they're crazy ideas that's about the only thing that i'm i'm concerned yeah. about yeah <clears throat> yeah so well, are, are you are you still connected with the Alberta project like or have you been hearing about how it's it's doing i, I know that i'm uh, i i talk with the bedouin yeah that i worked with regularly i mean yeah. we we became very very close yeah um i probably text a handful of families you know, every week or two. Yeah. But in terms of the the organization for Albela, I'm. <clears throat> we make contact once every six months. Every now and then, every now and then, someone will write me an email and ask me a question and say, "Hey, why did you do this? <laughs> and, and 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 how should we proceed on this yeah. thing? That because they want to build on what I did okay. and what we did." Yeah. Um, but their focus right now is is a big housing project. Housing is a real issue in in Alberta, and yeah. so I'm happy they're doing that. Um, I understand that there are some barriers to implementing what we did ecologically on a large scale. I have been told. 
I have been told that some of the large national projects and some of the large regional environmental projects have adopted the methodology we developed in Elbeda. Yeah. I don't know that that's officially the case. I don't, and, and I don't, I've been, I haven't been told by officials that that's the case. I've been told by people on the ground that yeah. these people are doing Elbeda. Um, uh, on on a large scale, so yeah. I I know that I know that it's made a difference. I know that it's 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 gotten. I know that a number of policymakers over there have seen my video at least, um, and and a number of members of the royal family, and that it's <clears throat> given them an idea of what's possible. Yeah. And I know that the monarchy announced massive reforestation projects. Oh, wow. Um, including mangroves on their coastline. So I, I don't know how much of that, if any, I can take credit for, or we can take credit for rather. Yeah. But um, I know that our site is still alive. I know that the ecology is still developing. Um, and I know that many people have been inspired by it. So I, I find that very gratifying. I think the, the best thing that I took away from that was my experience. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm a totally different person than I was 12 years ago because yeah. of, of what I went through over there. And, and I think by and large, a better one. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, so whatever, whatever the fallout of that project is, um, it, it's definitely set me on the path I'm on now. Yeah. And I'm on a path to grow millions of acres of forest. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and not alone, clearly, but um, I, think, I, I think I can lead our organization to, to be yeah. a vehicle for that. So on, on, on that note, Neil, the, the last time we, we spoke, which was back in April, you um you were you were like just kind of launching regenerative resources and and you, you mentioned um you know the um some of the different kind of investments or <clears throat> uh you know funding opportunities that that were going to be available is yeah. there is that is that operational where can people go to find out more about the work that you're doing or if they want to um you know so our current site is regenerativeresources.co Okay. We are about to launch a philanthropic raise for a reforestation project. Um, we're going to try to raise $12 million to grow 12 million mangroves. Um, and then in terms of investment, we're probably that people in general can participate in or firms or, or whatever it may be. I think we're still three months away. We're about to sign a right to purchase on a, uh, a 5,000 acre site in Mexico. And then we're gonna have to finance that project, which will be a mix of carbon-based revenues and, and revenue-based investment. So it's, we're treating it like an infrastructure project yeah. where investors get a, a payout off of the revenues rather than an equity-based one is, is how we want to do it. Okay. Interesting. 
Well, that's that's fantastic. So I will put the um, the link to that in the show notes <clears throat> below. And uh, whatever time you're you're hearing this podcast in the future, folks, I'm sure uh, there'll just be an increasing number of ways that you can get involved in the project. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we are gonna have we are gonna crowdfund some of this, where if people want to, you know, chip in ten bucks a month, um, we'll grow ten mangroves for every dollar we get. But also, you'll be able to track the growth of that forest. Uh, more or less in real time, as well as track the environmental and economic impact of what your money is doing. Um, one thing that I'm excited to trial is on our financial books, we're not just going to track financial capital. We're going to show how financial capital is generating more financial capital and biological and ecological capital at the same time. I, I actually wanna have like biodiversity on our financial books and come up with metrics to track it. Okay, so. So that <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna pave the way to start changing accounting so that um, in some ways we'll, we'll, we'll come up with one method and hopefully yeah. a thousand other firms do something similar and we'll come up with a way to start tracking all the stuff that we affect. Totally. So that, that that's that's kind of a, a great segue into the the conversation that I'd love to have with you uh, at some point in the future because that that's the piece that the nut that we're trying to crack right now is um, how like is there a way that we can objectively measure re regeneration so that you know you you can you can uh, reliably um, communicate that value to other people and show like you know so that like. So that these ecosystem services can be sold as a service because that's what they are. But yep. unle unless we can find a way to objectively measure those metrics, it's it's super difficult. And, and so I mean, I'm I'm just I'm curious. Like, have you? Um, wh what are some of the key kind of metrics that you're you guys are looking at right now, or have you gotten into that? So scene? We're developing a partnership with an entity that uses low orbit satellite data to track ecological change. <laughs> that's, so that'll. That's yeah, that's that'll be of... one way to do yeah. it. Yeah. We're also working with a group that they they have this filter that you can put in the ocean that collects floating DNA. Oh yeah, yeah. And you can track when we start, we can track what are all the species present in the ocean and yeah. then we can measure that into the years after we regrow all these mangrove forests and we can start to track what's coming back. Yeah, so it's, it's like, it's like a, a PLFA test, which measures the DNA in like soil for soil health, but yep. it's, it's for the ocean. Interesting. Yep, so you can also do, there's another group we we're in discussion with. My computer's about to die. I need to move and plug oh. this in real quick. <laughs> no uh, there's another group that does Okay, they do AI, they teach AI to recognize bird song. So you can do audio recordings, just constant audio recordings in different areas in the forest you're growing. And the computer through the AI and, and recording a bird song will tell you the density and the number of different species of birds you've got. Yeah, yeah. 
So we're gonna be able to track the increase in biodiversity in the water and in the air as our projects are implemented. Yeah. And at the same time, use low orbit satellite data to track things like biomass. Yeah. And then you can, you can triage those three different data sets to create a really interesting picture of what's going on ecologically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, we, we're going to use we're going to use high tech stuff to create new indigenous systems. Yeah, but we're also going to be tracking these metrics and putting them on our books. So when we, so when we go to, you know, an investor and they're like, hey, I'm only getting, you know, 5% returns on this investment, I can say, well, that's only if you're measuring your financial capital. Here's how many millions of animals you've created a home for. Yeah. Here's, here's how much carbon you've let, you've sequestered. Here's how much fresh water you've created. Here's how much rainfall you've generated with your investment. Yeah. And I think, I think for the right kind of investor, that's, that's not just sexy, that's mind blowingly amazing. Totally. Um, and we're going to do it. Totally. So the, the reason I'm green like an idiot is because <laughs> This is uh, this is exactly what uh, um, those are the same conclusions that we've came came to as well is is, is satellites, um, you know, some kind of AI technology that that you know can measure the sounds of, of biodiversity, um, and um, uh, and ideally, you know, some kind of a, you know soil health test that measures uh, you know the the this, this is for land-based systems. But I, I'd never, I'd never thought of like we, we haven't gotten to the point where we're looking at well, what about other kind of aquatic systems? But it's like it's the same. You can use the same metrics. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I'll I'll just give a bit of a, of a teaser, and then maybe we can chat offline. But like, so the 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 company that we we've, we've just created um, just in the last like two weeks here, and we're in the we're in the process of of you know, getting everything funded and, and starting to do our, our research and stuff is um, <clears throat> we're, we're looking at, um, so you're familiar with, with cryptocurrencies like, like Bitcoin or, you know, Ethereum or things like that. So sure. the, the way that, that those, uh, those economic systems work essentially is um, there are, for Bitcoin, like there are math problems that computers compete to solve that add, you know, another block to the chain, which is, a, is the way that they encode information in a, in a way that yep. is, is trustworthy and, and, and all this stuff. Um, yeah. And so the, the guys that we're working with are basically one of the top companies in, in, in the crypto space right now. And <clears throat> we've been doing some consulting with them on their private properties, um, mm -hmm. doing regeneration work. And we, we've kind of developed this idea of what if there was a way that that as opposed to paying a computer for solving a math problem, what if we could pay a land steward for solving a restoration problem? So yeah. and, and and so this has led to the same thing. It's like, okay, but in order to do that, we need to objectively measure, like it, you can objectively measure what, what a math problem is solved because all the other computers can verify, yep, that's how you solve that problem. Yeah. So if, if we can if we can come up with a, an objective way to say, yep, this species wasn't here before. There's more biomass than there was before. There's more you know biodiversity in the in the soil or the water life in terms of the DNA. 
um, or if it's you know the, the the leaf area index or the the you know like the photosynthetic capacity of the plant, whatever it is, or or carbon and and but if, if you can do it in an objective way, now we can actually create a a cryptocurrency that that literally every time a farmer restores land, he, like uh, a, a token is 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 given to that farmer. And, and in addition to all the, the kind of classical economic models that like where he can sell his products and like there's there's enough of a benefit to for a farmer to kind of regenerate land as is in terms of the you know his own enlightened self-interest. But the, the the barrier that we're trying to overcome is it's so freaking expensive. Like there, there's been 200 years or more, well, basically in some cases 10,000 years of of mining this ecological capital. And we've yep. basically got like a generation to to restore it, but but the so I, I'm like I, I don't know if if kind of our, our classical economic systems are just paying for you know regular goods and services. Um, the, 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 the things that people would see as goods and services like food and shelter and stuff like that. I don't know if there's enough um, of an incentive that we could get farmers to do all and land managers to do all the, the regeneration work without some other way of, of objectively measuring the, the ecological goods and services that are, that are created. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious to kind of hear your, your thoughts about that particular system and. <clears throat> it, it gets convoluted really fast, right? Yeah. Because anecdotally, Farmers who are managing their land regeneratively are more profitable. Yes. Right? Yeah. So you'd think that that in and of itself ought to be enough incentive. And I and I think there are, I mean, certainly with things like cover crops and no-till, there are a lot more farmers and, and farming in the conventional sense that are adopting these practices that you know are reducing their their inputs and increasing their resilience. But when we're talking about, <clears throat> you know, outside of the US and Canada framework, which is where which is where the vast majority of my work is is taking place. Yeah. Um, we're going into places where the you know, the crisis is there or the opportunity is just so immense because it's, it's way too obvious, yeah. right? So I'm, I'm in places where fishing villages have seen their catch decrease by 90%, right? And they're, they're facing hard times. Yeah. Um, and when, when people are facing hard times, they start to look for alternative systems to try to get out of the hard time. Yeah you know or we're in places where um take take for instance the middle east right now there's massive dairies in the middle east that source their feed from california and arizona yeah. right they're they're growing alfalfa in california and arizona bailing it and shipping it to Riyadh, yeah, right, and and 
alfalfa consumes between four and a half and five and a half million acre feet of water in California every year. Yeah. That's that's the equivalent of one third of the entire Colorado. Holy shit. For alfalfa, yeah. one crop going to animal fodder and dairy. Yeah. Right. Eventually, people in California and Arizona are gonna say, this is nuts and we're not doing it anymore because they're, they are facing huge amounts of pain yeah. um, over the loss of water and drought. One of the things we're developing is fodder crops that don't use any fresh water at all. Yeah. So we could, we could go to the Emirates or to Oman, you know, or to the Red Sea region and say, hey, you don't have to import any of your fodder anymore. We can grow all of it with seawater, right? And that changes their metrics on food security and, you know, and economy as well, right? Because they're not importing all of it. But it also has the potential to fundamentally change, you know, the virtual water paradigm, right? Because if, if they don't need to grow the alfalfa in California, then all of a sudden that water's going somewhere else, yeah. you know? So I think where, where I tend to work, it's where the crisis is imminent. Yeah. Because um, that's where people are looking for change. If someone's fat and happy, you know, they don't, they don't see the incentive to change what they're doing, yeah. right? Um, but beyond that, beyond like the individual incentives, it, it, you know, policy plays such a huge role in creating incentives and incentives drive behavior. Yeah. Uh, and then you have market forces at play. I, kn I know there's all sorts of monopolistic factors when it comes to our food system. So there's, it gets convoluted very, very quickly. But the fundamental line is, you know, we can, we can more, we can mortgage our ability in the future to grow food, or we can start growing food sustainably now. Um, and there will always be early adopters and then there are storytellers who tell the story and then there are people who say oh well maybe that is better I'm going to give it a shot and then they give it a shot and then it starts if it's the right thing it starts to snowball right because people will see that it's the right thing they'll see that they're better off they'll see that their land is better They'll feel better about it, and then and then you adopt it, right? So it's it's this yeah. long, long process of societal change, you know, being driven by the pioneers and the storytellers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's like paraphrasing Emma who said it, but it's like first they laugh, then they then they ridicule, then they fight, then you win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. And I I don't know what stage we're in. I think it depends on where we're talking about. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of work to be done. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, and so that, that was the, the kind of lever that we're trying to pull is, is, the, is through the uh, creating incentives. Because I, I, I have lost all faith in our governments. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, 
I've, I've never been so uh, so pessimistic about the the political scene than than uh, I have in the last you know twelve months, and um, and so it's like no, I don't no one's going to save us uh, at least from that from that space is is um, and so if we can be up, us, pardon? Yeah, it's, 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 it's be us. We're the ones we've been waiting for. Yeah. Um, so Neil, it's uh, I, speaking of dairy animals, I got to go milk my cows. <laughs> Good. so it was an absolute pleasure to, to to talk with you again and uh i would love to connect uh again real soon and um, uh, again for folks who who want to learn more about neil spackman's work they can go to regenerativeresources.co uh there'll be a show note in uh, a link to the, in the show notes below uh any any parting words Neil? i i think we've said a lot yeah I think we've said a lot, just that I find a lot of joy in doing work that I believe in. Yeah. And, and, and um, I know that the solutions we're creating are real. Um, and that, you know, we need, we need more people. We need more people. We need more of this human ingenuity dedicated to creating regenerative systems rather than trying to create the next piece of technology that's going to generate the next problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's all uh, back, but it's, it's a fun, it's a fun ship. We're having lots of, lots of fun. That's right. Anyhow, I appreciate the opportunity Dakota and, uh, appreciate the work that you and Rob are doing and, and Michelle as well. And, um, you know, we just got to keep going. Hey, I, I just had an idea, Neil. I, I live right next to an alkali lake. And so if you, yeah. if you, if you ever need to you know, expand your saltwater um, regeneration projects, you're, you're welcome to move it next door to me. And <laughs> there's, there's salicornia that'll grow up there. Okay. There cool. is. You could source it from a friend of mine in Scotland. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, there's stuff you can do with it. Cool. Uh, super exciting, man. I, I cannot wait to see um, see your next uh, uh, developments of this project and and uh, see where it goes. I appreciate it. I'll let you know because we're going to need all the help we can get. Awesome. Okay, brother. Talk Take to care. you. Bye. Bye-bye.